Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. It would help us find new listeners if you went to Apple Podcasts and left a rating and review and shared this podcast with your friends and network. Previous guests on the show have included J.T. Thomas, Mark DeMoz, and Jesse Cruikshank. You could go back and listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is Onia Okuwabi. Onia is a sociologist at Rice University's Religion and Public Life Program. Her research interrogates how diverse organizations impact racial inequality. She serves as teaching pastor at 21st Century Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and is the co-author of Multi-Ethnic Conversations. We have a really important conversation about equity in the church. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Onia Okuwabi. This episode is brought to you by All Nations Kansas City. Have you ever felt wholly discontent that one-third of the world doesn't know Jesus, that the church as we know it won't reach all peoples on earth, and that it's hard to find ways to use your gifts for the kingdom of God? Well, you're not alone. We feel it too. With 30 years of experience igniting movements to Jesus around the world, committed to following the lead of the Holy Spirit, All Nations has gifted trainers and coaches with time in the trenches. Do you want to make disciples in hard places? Do you want to join a like-minded community? Are you tired of compromising for the status quo? Then join us on The Leading Edge. Go to allnations.us to learn more. This podcast is done in association with the MX Platform and 100M Publishing. The MX Platform is a space for any disciple to be resourced and equipped to release movement within their context. So whether you lead your family, a small group, a microchurch, or you're a planter or pastor, you can find tools, resources, and training to help release potential within yourself and context. 100M Publishing publishes books by authors and thought leaders with new insight about movement DNA, discipleship, leadership, and movement dynamics. To learn more about these books and to check out the resources and training available, visit themxplatform.com. Onia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have a, a deep conversation with you uh, and seeing where this leads. Um, you know, I'd love to just hear your story of uh, yeah, coming to know Jesus and what following Jesus really means to you. Yeah, so I am one who grew up in a uh, Black Baptist church. Mm. Um, which was a fantastic experience in a lot of ways. Uh, but I was also a person who recognized that all of the things that people were saying about salvation didn't line up with my experience. Hmm. So they had this song that talked about the idea. I looked at my hands and my hands looked new. I looked at my feet and my feet did too. And I listened to that and I said, I have no idea what these people are talking about. Hmm. And so that was my experience growing up. I was kind of in the church, but yeah. I wasn't really uh, subscribing to it just yet and kind of figured, well, I guess this is what I grew up in. But if I'd grown up in another religion, that's what I would believe. <laughs> it wasn't until after college that I had my, my aha moment with uh, Jesus. And it was... I had just moved to New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, which if folks don't know it, it's a notorious party city. 
I was 21 years old. And so that's what I was there for. Um, But I didn't have any friends yet. And so what I had learned from my growing up someplace is that the place where you get friends to party with is at church. (laughs) So I wandered in the doors of a local church, hoping to make friends that we could go out and drink and party together. And this church was unlike any church I'd ever seen before. So it was one of these crazy Pentecostal church. I opened the doors of the church and this blonde lady whirled past me with her hair spinning and just (laughs) jumping around. Um, There were people rolling on the floor. There were other people Mm -hmm. laughing. There were people shouting. There were people speaking in tongues, which I'd never heard at that point. Um, And this continued like after the worship time, after the music stopped blaring, as the preacher was preaching, there was still bursts of laughter Mm -hmm. and sounds and discussions and just like things bubbling up all over the place. A lot of people would have seen that, I'm sure, and run for the hills. For me, I saw that and I was like, whatever this is, I'm pretty excited about it. I Mm. want to know more about it. Because it was the first time I had seen a group of people that I knew they weren't there just there for culture or because their parents Mm. brought them at some point and they stuck around. They really believed the message that was coming forth from this place and they showed it with their entire bodies and yeah. I came to find out with their entire lives. And so that was my story. I just kept showing up and eventually I was, I was doing a very different sort of partying than what I showed up for <laughs> initially. Yeah. And so as you, you walk through that, that Pentecostal experience and you see that people are, are loving Jesus with their whole bodies, with their whole lives, um, how did that start to inform your life of uh, your embodying uh, Jesus and who he is? Mm-hmm. I think what I wanted more than anything at first was just to, you know, be able to have that same level of, of faith and belief. And it started off by just um, coming and being discipled and following around um, folks who were uh, living this way. So my first discipler is a dear lady who I still know um, named Pastor Diane. And she was kind enough to, as a baby Christian, just kind of take me under her wing and say, okay, I'm going to go pray with these people. I'm going to go do this. Just come with me. Mm-hmm. And I would come with her and I would learn and I would um, absorb her um, just love not just for the experiential stuff, but her deep, deep love for the scripture and for yeah. studying. Mm-hmm. And so that became my food. Uh, basically, I would go home night after night after work, and I would be studying the scripture. Within a year of walking through the doors of that church, I was in seminary because I was mm-hmm. so hungry um, for more knowledge uh, to go with, again, the experience and having those two very closely connected yeah. um, in the way I experienced my faith. That's that's kind of how I proceeded from there. Mm. And so as you're, you're devouring scripture, what are the things that are standing out to you? Like, what are the things that you start to grab a hold of? Like, these are your anchor points. It was so much. Honestly, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it sounds really funny um, to most people, but I had been told my whole life that Jesus died for our sins, mm-hmm. but I don't think anybody ever explained to me why or mm-hmm. how that worked or, yeah. you know, this is the theological underpinning behind it. And as I was to come to find out years later, there are multiple theological <laughs> underpinnings under it, but it felt like my whole life, the simple phrases had been all I had received. And so it was just like, Mm. okay, this is, this is what you're telling me, but having the opportunity to um, really deeply study scripture and then come to understand things like, okay, this is what the whole Jesus story is about. Mm. Um, Understanding the old Testament at all, like knowing that it was one continuous story of one group of people. Somehow nobody explained that to me (laughs) (laughs) at any point after 18 years of church. And so just these things that um, I'm sure people knew, but never really come out in the context of a, uh, a, a series of sermons or even Sunday school. 
was really just mind blowing for me. I honestly, I can't point to one thing because everything I was learning was blowing my mind all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that really got to me is when I, I started to read scripture as a narrative, uh, yes. as story of seeing the story of scripture. Um, and, made sense to me as soon as mm -hmm. it came up in narrative and story, you know, for you, the things that you do as a, as a teaching pastor, um, mm -hmm. you know, for your, for your church as a sociologist, um, mm -hmm. and as somebody is trying to figure out what does it look like to have multi-ethnic churches or what does it look like to see race and gender and power equity and unity in the church? Um, how does story shape uh, the way that you help people engage in those areas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think the first thing that I will have to say is honestly, that part, which is such a major part of my um, faith and my work now was completely lacking in mm. those early years. So as wonderful as that church experience was, as much as I needed it, um, I didn't get any of that. I didn't yeah. really even think it was part of the, the, the Christian story in a serious way, mm -hmm. besides the, the pat words of, we just, we love all people the same. Yeah. It took me a couple of years, actually four years into my faith. When I started attending my first intentionally, uh, multiracial church, people's mm -hmm. church in Cincinnati, where somebody, you know, I, again, I, I had a revelation of the church has been segregated um, for so many years. Uh, it's the most segregated institution of American life, even to this mm -hmm. day. Wow. And wow. to begin to understand that it wasn't forces outside of the church that was causing that separation inside the church. It was the church itself that was pushing that separation out and causing uh, greater segregation in the rest of society. When I came to understand that, that's mm. when it became integrated into my faith. And then going back again to all of those scriptures that I had been introduced to, yeah. starting to see the ideas of, of unity in there for the first time. Mm. But I think one of the ways that that story really helpfully plays out when you're looking at at uh, issues of equity across race, across gender, across class, is just to really look at the stories of the folks in the Bible. I mean, Jesus's story um, himself, he could have yeah. been born uh, to any type of family in any type of place and chose to be in the, the backwater town in a poor family in an illegitimate uh, birth sort yeah. of story, <laughs> the most legitimate, illegitimate birth there ever was, <laughs> um, to have that narrative be his human story, it says something yeah. to all of us, right? We look at the Samaritan woman, uh, which has captured hearts and minds for years and years, the Syrophoenician yeah. woman, and how that opened up the gospel for so many people. It's just... There are so many stories of people who, even in our day and age, we might walk past, uh, but Jesus didn't, and it changed everything. Yeah. You know, even Jesus, at the when he announced his ministry in Luke 4, as he's rolling out the scroll in Isaiah, uh, reading Isaiah 61, um, mm -hmm. and saying, you know, I proclaim good news to the, the poor, you know, set the captives free, and, you know claim the year of the Lord's favor. All the Jews were excited. This is this is for us. This is who we are. Um, come, liberate us, Jesus. Mm -hmm. We want to be liberated. But really, then Jesus said, well, I know what you're thinking, and I see what you're thinking. And he's saying, but remember, you know, Elisha uh, healed Naaman the Syrian, but he didn't heal any of the lepers of Israel. And you know, Elijah was sent to the widow of Zarephath, but none of the widows of, of Israel. Um, and he started to open up their mind of saying, really, I'm I'm here for all people and I'm here for the marginalized, the neglected, the ones on the outside. But I am here for all people. And the Jews didn't like that at all. And they, they wanted to kill him. They were ready right. to throw him off a cliff. And, you know, Jesus escaped them uh, at that point. Uh, but Right away, Jesus is saying he is for all people, that we can't be ethnocentric. If I didn't have any uh, anything in me of 
intentionality uh, to actually think about others and other people, other ethnicities, I would just be comfortable and stay where I am and not realize any sort of power dynamics. I wouldn't realize that really the gospel is for all people. How do we stop uh, ourselves from being so ethnocentric and start to look up and above to see other people? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that story of the, the unrolling of the scroll because so many people miss the, the reason why the crowds got so mad at Jesus. Yeah. It wasn't for anything else. It was just like, I'm going to include these people you don't like. And that was it. That was enough yeah. to uh, want to throw them off a cliff. Uh, I think one of the primary ways, and we're starting to recapture this a lot, is, is honestly to listen to marginalized people. Um, yeah. What you just said is foreign to my experience. I don't live in a world where I could just focus on people who look like me, people yeah. who have my experience. I have to understand other people's experience while at the same time living on the negative end of power dynamics, um, at least racially and gender wise, not class wise. Um, I have to recognize those dynamics that exist and how they affect my life and how they affect the lives of people around me. It's, it's a matter of survival, really. Um, if we are listening to those voices and letting those folks lead, we won't miss these things. Yeah. Um, and arguably, we'll be closer to the word, world of the scriptures than we would be uh, otherwise. And mm -hmm. so I don't know that there's an, another solution to that. We are designed as a body, as different parts to be correctives to each other. And yeah. so if there's a part where one part of the body is blind, it, there is somebody else who can provide that perspective. We just have to be willing to, to listen. Listening is a, is a key thing uh, to be able to be a really good and effective missionary, but it's also very key uh, to being a really good and effective follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, we can start to follow God within our own culture, but if we uh, if we want to actually follow the ways of Jesus, we're going to have to be cross-cultural um, mm -hmm. and to see the world around us and others because God is a God of diversity um, and he made us all. Um, and so what are some ways that we can be effective listeners um, as we're engaging other people? Yeah. Um some more really important points you made there, Joshua, that I love the idea of, you know, being listeners as, as missionaries. And I think it really comes down to a mutuality, um, which requires recognizing um, I, I am not the other, um, but I need the yeah. quote unquote other. And that we, I'm not bringing something to you that you have something to offer me as well. And so when we create those reciprocal relationships of mutuality, that becomes uh, an environment for really real listening. Um, listening has to be incarnational, which means I am willing to, in the best ways that I can, step into your shoes as a listener. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about as we help people uh, bridge difference of race, class, and gender is how do we um, not have uh, misconceptions and deflections? How do we not listen for the sake of letting people know how they're wrong or how they didn't talk about the thing that I care about yeah. <laughs> in their communication, uh, but really stopping and listening to them and um, putting myself in their shoes to the extent I can uh, becomes yeah. the some one of the keys to effective listening. Mm, that's really good. You know, what have you actually seen as as you've you've studied a lot in uh, diversity, uh, diversity in initiatives uh, in institutions, not just the church, but uh, overall in organizations? Um, what is working well so that we could actually have uh, voices in the room that we could hear and listen to and not mm -hmm. just have somebody up on stage because they they look different and they go hey we've met our requirement to have somebody that looks different than than mm -hmm. us but actually have voices in the room that actually play a part um, and actually start to to help lead and guide 
and not just are there just to be there. Yeah. So I'm, for the past couple of years, I have been studying diverse organizations, so churches, universities, and workplaces, and I've had a special focus on the experiences of people of color within those organizations. Oftentimes, when there's a, a diversity initiative, especially, especially one based around race, mm-hmm. one of the quickest solutions is people say, oh, we're going to bring in a leader of color, and that's going to help solve whatever problem it is that we have. Um, unfortunately, more often than not, it creates more problems than it solves uh, because those folks who are brought in are not listened to. There is not a a new structure for them to fit in. They're just asked to uh, fit in and go along with an existing structure that's not designed for them. And as a result, um, in the the work that I'm I'm writing now, nine out of 10 of the pastors and professors who were diverse leaders brought into a, who are leaders brought into a diverse uh, organization experienced uh, psychological, physical, emotional signs of stress as a result of their positions there. So we're doing tangible harm to people in the name of diversity. And so- I often say, if you want to have uh, organizations that focus on racial equity, the idea is not to do diversity first and hope Mm. that by bringing in numbers, racial equity will come. The idea is focus on equity, focus on the tangible experiences of people within these organizations, try to make that the best it is, Mm. and then you might just get diversity. And so that's Mm. the first thing I say when I'm working with organizations. I ask them to begin to work on um, their organization and examine the places where inequality exists, again, be it by race, by gender, et cetera. This involves looking at your underlying paradigms and the things behind the, the creation of your organization. Just to give you an example, I was recently working with a a church, fantastic church, um, very, Uh, high understanding of issues and dynamics of race. But when we started looking at their paradigms or their founding myths, one of the things that was under the surface was they were a a group of relatively affluent, well-educated folks who were moving into a neighborhood in the city to quote unquote help. So they had right there within their founding myth, exactly what you were talking about earlier, this I'm here to help you instead of this idea of mutuality and reciprocal exchange. So we had to, instead of just creating a new program or process, go straight to that founding myth and we had to replace it with ideas of of mutuality in order for them to move forward and have an organization that then could be about welcoming other people because they weren't there to help other people. They were there to do life and have relationships with other people. So that's one thing that works well in organizations. Don't focus on getting diversity, focus on what are the foundations your organization is built on and can those foundations be equitable? Mm. You can do that while you're all mostly a monoracial organization and then move into uh, being diverse when you are prepared uh, to welcome (laughs) in people of of different races and different genders without chewing them up and spitting them out. Mm. I think the other thing that's really important is to, to continually realize the stakes If you don't, you can kind of feel like these sorts of things are add-ons or they're not important, but we all are made in the image of God. And so I like to reverse that and say, you miss the image of God and the people you refuse to see. Mm -hmm. So if you're not welcoming, if you're not seeing people, you're missing part of who God is that you can only get by interacting with those people. And so by keeping that in front of you as very much part of the gospel and very much part of, of knowing who God is, it makes it rise to the level of importance that is, is accurate and adequate. Yeah, I I mean, I totally agree that we need one another in the body of Christ. We're missing aspects of who God is. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so we must uh, learn. You know, I love now that we're actually the one thing I do love about being in a globalized world where we actually mm-hmm. have uh, communication and thought and we actually know what's happening around the world is that we can learn from one another, um, that we could actually start to be tied to one another. We see a shift uh, in the Christian world into mm-hmm. the global south 
Um, mm-hmm. And the majority of Christians in the world are going to be, if not already, in the global south. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's something that if we don't listen to where the move of God is happening, we're going to miss something. As we're trying to see equity here um, in in our neighborhoods and our communities and our churches, how can we start to see equity globally um, by listening to one another and seeing that there are other voices that must lead out in different areas in different ways so that we could actually see the glory of God? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It is, is 100% incumbent on us to listen to the, the global majority. And, you know, honestly, those, those are the contexts in which Christianity is still working super well. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're not having a collapse of, of faith or, or of churches uh, and churches are growing, churches are thriving. And so we uh, ignore those places to our own detriment. I would say one of of the key things is, you know, searching out uh, wisdom and knowledge uh, from those places, though there are uh, wonderful works. I have a a book on African public theology on my shelf. That's Mm. one of my next up uh, books Mm. to read. But we need to understand the models and paradigms that exist in those places instead of uh, always trying to export our own models and paradigms, which is is really the second bit, not expecting um, churches, organizations, et cetera, in the global majority to line up to a white normative Western standard. Um, mm-hmm. Too often, places have been called unprofessional if they don't line up to those mm-hmm. standards without the recognition and respect that uh, different things work in different places. And some of those things might even work a lot better, uh, but we are not necessarily willing to listen to them. Mm. And so making sure that we are are seeking out that knowledge instead of just what's right in front of us and then not uh, holding people to standards that are are not biblical, uh, but are are highly cultural and maybe are not the right standards for this this day and time. That's that's really good. So, what does it actually take to be able to to hold to the standards of Christ? What does discipleship look like for the church, mm-hmm. so that we could say this is the standard of Christ, and this is what we want to embody as the church? Hmm. I think that's that's a a, a long question. <laughs> What does it mean to look like Jesus? <laughs> you got a minute. <laughs> Yeah, it's all right. We have we have all the time in the world. We, we're all oh. trying to figure that out, aren't we? <laughs> so I was I, I I recently did a sermon on the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are are a, a chiasm. You know, one of those those delicious nuggets of scripture where the the top and the bottom line up, and all the goodness that you need mm-hmm. to know is in the middle, like a jelly donut. <laughs> and the the two bits of the Beatitudes that are in the middle are um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness mm. and uh, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And mm. so in the Beatitudes, which is a sermon about what does it mean to live in this kingdom of God? How do yeah. we now comport ourselves? These are the two things that Jesus felt were most central, that we would be hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that the, the world being made right, not just our personal righteousness, but righteousness in the world would be as needful to us as our daily bread and our daily water. Mm-hmm. And that we would show that desire and that our, our actions towards the world being made right, not by what we protest, not, not that protest is bad, protest is great, not by who we speak against, not that holding people accountable is Mm. bad. It's important. But the most important way that we show that is by our acts of mercy. And I can't help but think about the early church, which, Mm. um, you know, folks said of them, you don't just feed your widows, you feed our widows too. You don't Mm. just take care of your sick, you take care of our sick too. That was a profound way of hungering and thirsting after righteousness and then showing what this kingdom culture looked like, what it Mm. meant to be a Christ follower through acts of mercy. So if I were to sum it up, I think that's that's what it looks like. (laughs) How we do that, I don't know. 
but trying every day, right? <laughs> we are trying every day. And, you know, there is a lot of places, uh, you know, in the American church. Uh, and the story of the American church is a, is a place where a lot of times these acts of mercy um, were, were only done uh, if they looked uh, like you. Um, and they weren't done, uh, and people that didn't look like, uh, somebody else. Um, and so there's a, there's a history there in the American church. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the American church is, is shifting and changing, but we have, we still have a long way to go because we will always have a long way to go until, you know, Jesus returns because we'll, always have places and rooms to figure out to look more like Jesus. But as we, we see this history, as we're moving towards a, a place that we are actually on more uh, equitable terms, and we actually see that mercy is for all, um, that we, you know, Jesus requires mercy. Um, and how then do we shape uh, this church in America in which you and I both serve and love, um, mm-hmm. how can we serve it in a place where mercy and righteousness is for all um, mm-hmm. and we can start to to really look like what the kingdom of God is g- going to look like? Yeah, I think... For that, I go to to one of my other uh, favorite scriptures, which is uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 24. And that uh, precedes the idea that we can create a a body of Christ with no division in it. But the thing that we would have to do in order to do that is to give greater honor to the parts of the body that have historically lacked it. Mm. So we take the people who are marginalized in our society um, and we give them greater honor within the church. Mm. And by doing that, we start to create this unified body where you can show acts of mercy to everyone. Mm. I, I, it makes me sad to say, but I think too often where we have made these errors in the past is that we are busy giving honor to people who already have honor people who have money, power, and wealth, instead of um, privileging uh, in the way the Bible talks about, uh, Mm. privileging folks who have lacked honor, privileging the marginalized, not again, so that we can create a reversal and um, eat the rich or something, um, but so that there can be uh, no division and so that there can Mm. be uh, equality within the body. That's Mm. that's what it requires. Mm. We have the directions for what it requires. Yeah. Uh, Jesus gave us, uh, left us, uh, and <laughs> the, the folks who followed him left us a, a pretty comprehensive uh, book in many, many ways. Yeah. Um, the problem is some of the parts of the book are hard and we don't want to do them. So <laughs> 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 That's one that I don't see done very often, but would make a profound difference in our churches. Hmm. So what is, I mean, what is, have you seen that practically done? What does it look like to, to give honor to the marginalized practically? Um, and what difference does that make in, in churches and communities? Yeah. So I, you know, I will, I will give my contacts as an example, not because we have it perfect. Um, but I think we're a good example of what does it mean to, to strive and to struggle to do this on, yeah. on a day-to-day basis. Um, one of the things that that we have, you know, based the foundations of our our church plant on, is the idea of of love and unity, which means we actively seek to combat any form of bias that positions one person or group above another. So when we do things like have our our conversations about race, uh, which we do, uh, we did a whole. Uh, five weeks of Sunday morning services that were a a, a workshop about race and racial equity. Um, in those conversations, we privileged the folks of color who were in the room. So what does that mean practically? That means unlike a lot of places where you would spread them out, so each group mm-hmm. got one person of color so that you know the people in the group would get to hear that perspective, uh, you put them together. Um, and if other people get to over here, great. And if not also great so that they don't feel isolated and they don't feel like I have to be the voice for, um, everyone's, uh, perspective. 
we lay out ground rules that privilege those those people in the conversation and say, okay, if they uh, you know call out something, we are not going to stop the conversation just because other people feel uncomfortable because yeah. somebody else starts to cry because they don't they they feel uncomfortable with what was said because that's silencing mm. um, to people who have already historically been silenced. Yeah. So in yeah. everything that we do in this conversation, we are not going to use uh, folks of color as a tool to teach uh, white folks about racism. We're gonna learn together with privileging the comfort of the people Mm. of color who have to endure discomfort on Mm. this issue every single day of the week. Mm. So that's one small example. There are, there's much, you know, broader macro level things, but that's kind of how it plays out at a micro level. I I love that. I think that's that's a great example and that's helpful. Uh, to a lot of people of what it actually looks like, um, uh, you know, as somebody as a as a white male American, I have a lot of of power and privilege that I don't recognize unless I actually do the work to recognize it myself. Um, and so, you know, those sort of things are really helpful um, to actually get us to take some blinders off um, and to look with new lenses. And, you know, I think that if we're looking at the world, if we're going to shift in our worldview and our change, we have to actually start to see with different lenses. We have to see with different glasses. And and I know I need that. And so one of the things that I, I need to do, one, is to is to read um read books from from people of color or people from the global south of what is the what does the church look like what does jesus look like in the midst of, of things and i'm going to if i start to look with different glasses i'm going to see god uh in a different perspective in a different way where and the the actual beauty and glory of god actually expands mm-hmm. in my heart you know for me it was the very first time that I started to think of of Arab Muslims uh, mm-hmm. was when I finally told God that I'm done working for you and I am now ready to be with you. And whatever you want to do in my life, I'm going to follow. I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, God started to speak to my heart about Arab Muslims. And I never thought mm-hmm. of Arab Muslims before, maybe at 9-11 for one day, I thought of Arab Muslims um, and not in a good light. But he started, I started to have books come across my my path where I started to read uh, uh, from Arab Muslim perspectives uh, and an Arab perspectives and then Arab Christian perspectives. Um, and then I started to say yes to what God wanted to see in my heart uh, play out, um, ended up going to the Middle East um, being with Arabs, and the I think the greatest thing for me uh, in the midst of that is I was able to call people friends. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because of what God did in my heart. I was able to say, "Hey, these are my friends," mm-hmm. and we're starting to see what does the kingdom of God look like in this people in this place. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't a project that I had to go and and do. It was a it was an invitation to walk with God to see what his kingdom looks like and different people and places. Um, so what what are some things that you would suggest to help people take some shifts and changes um, to see things from different perspectives, to b- see more of the glory of God and to see... Um, see his body uh, from different people and places so that we could actually have more unity. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's some of the things that you just just mentioned were, were very important. Um, one of the, the things that uh, we do is have, have people take a, a relationships experiences inventory and say, who in your life uh, really is different than you? Who have you had experiences of being mentored by or you know being in relationships with or, or going over their house or going out for vacation or, or having them lend you money even? Yeah. Because all of those things are different levels of relationship. And when we have people do that, uh, it really is eye-opening sometimes how insular uh, their worlds are, and it allows people to to want to step out. Um, 
the next thing you you also mentioned is is making these relationships uh, intentionally, uh, not by being weird about it and being like, you know, I, I I've had people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love, I, I have people literally say to me, uh, white folks, um, who I love, um, I'd like a black friend. What do you talk to black people about? And, um, yeah, the same things you talk to other people about it's the people we, we are, we are people. So uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I could talk to you about Hamilton for a long time. I think Hamilton's a good place to start. Yes. Uh, that, 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 that may be a class trigger, but it's definitely not a racial That's true. Problem. Um, so, you know, build, building these relationships, uh, expanding your bookshelf, expanding your, your musical selection, um, you know, challenge yourself. There was a, a church that got a lot of, of hate mail, but they mm. fasted from whiteness for, for Lent and only wow. listened to music outside of, of, of CCM and, and challenged themselves to expand themselves in that way. Wow. That's a, a fantastic idea. Yeah. But don't yeah. let it stop there because that really only deals with the, the interpersonal um, relationships of power. Now that you know Arab Muslims, Joshua, I'm sure you're super sensitive to times when, you know, their immigration is banned by the government or they mm -hmm. can't get home to see their families or, yeah. you know, yeah. there is a, a, a target on their countries in ways that's not on other countries mm -hmm. uh, that are of a different religious or, or racial makeup. And so by having those friends, that's not the end goal to itself, even though it's important and friendship is not a, a goal necessarily, but the way that those friendships then start to bring equity is that yeah. you as a white guy start to speak out about these issues that affect Arab Muslims that they can't speak out for because they're yeah. not here. Um, but you can, uh, you can, uh, amplify their voices and in places where they're not, you can give voice to their concerns. And that's mm. what starts to move the needle, not just having friends of a different race or religion or gender but when you start to to in your sphere of influence make mm. structural changes that make life better for your yeah. friends yeah yeah uh you know one of the 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 people i interviewed for this podcast i think it was amy sherman she said that there was this quote that she read is that when you actually when we have power is we actually have the capacity to bring capacity. Um, and so actually the people with power, um, like like me as a, as a white male American, I actually have the capacity to bring capacity to other folks. Uh, the people that don't have power, I actually have the power to bring up people's voices and let other voices be heard um, and not take the airways, airwaves myself. Um, mm -hmm. And but that's that is a, a huge intention intentionality that I have to have to mm -hmm. say I actually have some capacity um, to be able to do this at this point in my life um, because of just the way that where I was born and how I was born and, and raised. And so I actually need to use that voice for good and the marginalized, the neglected and not just uh for me to hear my own voice, but to lift up the voices of others um, mm -hmm. and to bring that capacity uh, to other people. Um, and so it's actually, it's, I think it, it, takes, it takes some work and it takes some effort and it takes some intentionality. And I think some people are, are much better at it than others, um, as, you, as you know. Um, but for, for somebody like me, that has that capacity to do that, what do you think uh, are good ways to go about bringing capacity towards others that are not uh, degrading or demoralizing to other people? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things. Uh, one is, is this idea of um, amplifying the voices of others instead of stepping in and being their voice. Um, they have voices. Uh, so making sure that there is room for them to be heard. Uh, the other thing is being really self-reflective, I think is required in the, in those positions because too often, even people with power don't feel like they have power. Mm -hmm. And so they, they Sweet. grasp for it. They, yeah. they want to maintain it during it, 
you know, doing the opposite of, of, of what Paul did when he recognized his um, ethnic power as a Jew and then mm -hmm. laid it down for the sake of the Gentiles, realizing that this power that I have is, is really an ethnocentrism that is not healthy. Yeah. And so I'm going to consider my, my, my birth order and my, my educational credentials and my um, circumcision on the eighth day. I'm going to consider that all garbage uh, yeah. at the foot of the cross so that I can be an effective minister to Gentiles. And so recognizing that and having that, that self-forgetfulness that you're not going to grasp for any advantage that you think that you need, that you're mm -hmm. going to lay it down. I think the other thing that is really important is, is, is recognizing the places where um, your presence is creating space for others and the places where it's not. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my husband said something that has always um, stuck with me. We were um, talking about discussing a, a, um, a white leader, again, a, a great person, but had only really been, you know, affected by, by racial issues since, uh, the murder of George Floyd mm -hmm. and was wanting to do a, a bigger initiative, uh, around race. And the idea that, that sometimes that's not your place. Yeah. Um, you may have the, the, the voice, you may get the attention and people may give you the money. Um, but, like David, uh, who wanted to build a, a temple, God said, David, you have too much blood on your hands. This is not for you to do. Yeah. And so really being discerning about the things that are for you to do and the things that are not for you to do. And maybe you soar up those resources mm -hmm. and literally, instead of saying, you can come join me, you can be my co-leader. Who's not really a co-leader. You do it. And I will do all the things that only I can do to support you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. I, I like that a lot. Um, yeah. So just there's a couple of questions that I have here at the end. One is if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, thinking Ooh. about you going to New Orleans as the, your little 21-year-old, what advice would you give to yourself? Uh, uh, before or after I walked into the <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you, you, you want to say. <laughs> um. Either way, it, it's going to be a great ride and it's going to be very different than you're expecting it to be. So buckle up, basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's true. It's going to be a great ride. Um, and it is a great ride. Um, yeah. Anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? Oh, um, huh. Well, I um, I'm in the we're in the last season of a, a drama show called This Is Us, <laughs> yes. which I know many people um, watch. But uh, because I am an uh, Enneagram Seven and I don't like negative emotions, that's my opportunity to to have a good cry and have it not affect me afterwards. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> You're in a similar place of needing that, I would say. Uh, <laughs> Great. Great. Um, I, for, you know, for me, like if, if I wanted to start to read, uh, something from diverse voices, uh, mm -hmm. where, what would be, uh, a good start for some people? Yeah. Um, read, uh, the cross and the lynching tree. That's, uh, profound and it yeah. will change your life if you haven't read it. Um, I, if you want to read something specifically on uh, racial reconciliation or conciliation, as a lot of people would call it, I, I like, I bring the voices of my people. Hmm. Um, that's a reconciliation book from a womanist perspective and it's really excellent. Um, I still love uh, Lisa Sharon Harper's uh, The Very Good Gospel, because that will give you a grounding. And mm. where did we start? We started with good relationships between people. Yeah. And yeah. we want to move back to that place. Um, I have a couple of things. I have a, a book called Multi-Ethnic Conversations that I wrote with Mark Demaz that helps uh, churches, people uh, start conversations about race in the church. It includes that experiences survey that I mentioned yeah. earlier. So if, if, if you just want it for just for that, um, it, it would be worth it. And then I got to do a book recently called Red Skies with some friends. And there's a chapter in there that I, I wrote on race, but the whole book is just thinking about the future of the church and it's, it's, it's good fun. It will be thought provoking in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
That's really good. That's really good. Um, yeah. Anything that you would love to to leave the listeners with right now? I would say just um, we've been through a lot together over the past couple of years, haven't we? <laughs> um, don't stop dreaming. I, I wasn't going to say believe in because that's a song. Um <laughs> Don't stop dreaming and imagining of, of what the world could look, look like when Jesus is in charge and trying to bring that to fruition in your life. Uh, yeah. I think too often we settle for less. Uh, we settle for less than we were created for. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make the sort of world we want to see. So if you haven't in a while activated your imagination towards uh, what the better looks like, uh, mm-hmm. take some time to do that today. It'll, it'll be worth your while. Mm-hmm. Well, that's beautiful. Onia, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, it was a privilege and a pleasure to to talk with you today. So thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.